Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture, BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Food Therapy Podcast. Today, we are so excited to invite Lauren Sharifi, a registered dietitian nutritionist based in Massachusetts. Lauren owns her own virtual private practice where she specializes in ARFID, Avoided Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Lauren provides one-on-one group support for parents, teens, adults, and she takes a neurodivergent, affirming, trauma-informed, and responsive feeding approach to make eating and nourishment more accessible for individuals with ARFID and ARFID-like traits. So welcome to the podcast, Lauren. We're super excited to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So there might be some people listening to this or like, what is ARFID? Like, I, I've never heard of ARFID. So maybe we should yeah. start there with like, what yeah. is ARFID? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's very, very common. So you you did say what it stands for. So it stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Um, it's actually one of the newest eating disorders. And that's why not a lot of people have heard of it. It's previously thought of as like selective eating disorder, extreme picky eating, um, and then in 2013, they actually came out and, and the DSM is now has this ARFID diagnosis. So it's not even 10 years old. <laughs> and then I guess, you know, some things to kind of know is that there actually are multiple subtypes within ARFID. So um, there are technically three subtypes. The first one, um, because they're like avoided, and that's often um, individuals have sensory related differences. There's an aversive subtype. So these individuals often have a fear of an adverse consequence. So some negative health event, maybe GI symptoms, um, something that's, you know, uncomfortable, or they have a fear that something bad's going to happen. And then the third subtype is restrictive. So often these individuals have really low interest in eating. They might get full quickly. They may may not experience hunger in the same way as um, others do. Um, and in that case, it just makes food unenjoyable for them. Um, and what I often find in many of my clients, like they may have like a, like a main subtype, but they may actually fall into multiple subtypes. Um, and each individual is very different. Yes. <laughs> I'd say like a lot of the individuals, you know, they may have some nutrition deficiencies, like in the DSM, they're like you may have nutrition deficiencies, weight loss. Um, slow growth or psychosocial dysfunction, but it's not common that you have you have to have these things to have a, a diagnosis. So, you know, we see that a lot of eating disorders that there's that weight loss, um, and it can be, but not always um, part of part of it. Yes, and I feel like the malnutrition piece might get picked up easier also with kids, like when they're maybe not growing or reaching like certain percentiles. What would you say is the biggest difference between an ARFA diagnosis and maybe like other more well-known eating disorders? Yeah, I think the the biggest difference is like the fear of like that, that adverse event or fear of like 
or dislike of that sensory experience with eating, which um, isn't common with other eating disorders, more that fear of weight loss. Um, and I think there's also this like misconception too, that you can't have that fear of like, or body dysmorphia, um, but it's absolutely can, can be there. And it just may not be like the main thing, but can definitely make eating more difficult too. But the, yeah. yeah, the biggest difference is that more that fear of some like adverse things, sensory. Wow. And thank you for sharing that piece because, yeah. you know, folks with ARFID absolutely can struggle with body image concerns, but it may not be the driving force of the eating disorder like it would be in some of the other eating disorders. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. What yeah. do you see is the most common among the subtypes? I am, you know, I'd say for my clients, majority kind of fit into that avoidant category. So the sensory, um, have sensory different, like again, like over overwhelm, hypersensitivity to textures, which makes eating difficult. And then they kind of also, also now have that low interest, and low appetite. Um, so those are the most common. And I do have, um, some clients with the adverse of like fear of like getting sick or GI stuff, but more of the sensory stuff. So I was just wondering, and this is like a really vague question, but is ARFID something that someone is born with? Is it triggered by an event in one's lifetime that brings on ARFID symptoms? Like what do you see is like the common reason for someone maybe developing ARFID? Yeah, I'd say so especially for those individuals like the sensory related differences, um, they may have had like, again, these sensory um, issues or differences. I don't like the word issues, but just differences all of their lives and then considered a picky eater. So this is kind of like their norm, their norm. And um, like, again, is that a problem? No, but then we add in trauma. So that could be anything from, it doesn't have to be an actual traumatic event, but like pressure forced to, you know, that, um, individuals like, you know, labeling them as picky. Um, it could, um, be an event. So got like gagging experience that they didn't like or choking experience. Um, the, again, right. Eat, having to eat foods that are hyper, they're hypersensitive to exposure to those things and really not liking it. So it's a combination of like that eating difference plus trauma. Um, and then, you know, society, right. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, you have to eat this certain way. You have to have a balance plate, all this um, diet culture stuff that kind of impacts their eating. So um, there might be like just a genetic, you know, underlying difference, but then you're adding all these other components that might now make eating less accessible for them and more difficult. Interesting. And so the genetic component you mentioned, is there ever like, I know that like, what's the difference between somebody having like, like, are there typically, I don't know, is it called comorbidities even with mental health as well? Like, do they like typically in, you know, something like anorexia, there's some sort of, you know, anxiety, depression that comes along with it a lot of the times with ARFID. Is there ever like, is it closely associated with, like, I know in autism, a lot of people will have sensory issues. Is there, is there any overlap there? Yeah. Yeah. So definitely a lot of, um, there's often, uh, like a neuro, they kind of fit in the neurodivergent umbrella. So I see a lot of individuals with, um, who are autistic, um, ADHD, um, OCD, anxiety, sensory processing differences. Um, so there often is, and if there isn't a diagnosis, sometimes they may have just traits 
Um, and the biggest thing is right. That sense like hypersensitivity to certain like smells, textures, environment. Um, so definitely, yeah, there is some connection there. Yeah. And then at what point do they, uh, seek out, I guess if they're just not, they're realizing differences in their child's eating or in their own personal eating that they would seek out a dietitian. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's definitely, um, kind of different for each individual why they may come to me um but for sure like a lot of the adults that I see were like no I was just an eater all my life and then I like looked it I found it on the web um and like this sounds like me and now I'm like motivated and want to to do some work around it and just better understand um like what works for me around food and eating yeah. Something that I've noticed a lot in working with some ARFID patients is there's a lot of shame. And a lot of that shame also stems from some of the trauma that you also said, you know, early in childhood when you're called like, oh, you're such a picky eater. And that almost becomes your identity from an early age. And, you know, what would you, what do you tell your clients who come in and are experiencing the shame around ARFID and just their inability or, you know, not being able to kind of go with the flow and eat the same as some of their friends and partners and family members? Yeah. Um, I guess like the big thing is kind of helping like validate their experience because I feel like for a lot of individuals, um, especially, you know, if they're, you know, when they were kids, their experiences weren't validated and that's where that shame kind of came in. Um, so really validating like, yeah, like eating's hard, <laughs> um, and kind of providing that like empathy around that because, um, a lot of individuals just like have never received that in their life and it can really be like feel like a big relief. <laughs> um, and again, like telling them it's not their fault, right? A lot of this stuff is like, you didn't do anything wrong. And I feel like even parents feel that like I did something wrong to my kid. And that's not the case at all. Um, and some individuals, it's like, you know, a lot of it's around like acceptance and grief around the fact that they're like how they, their relationship with food is not what's perceived as normal. And that's hard, right? Of like, you know, you know, like yes this is just you know who you are and that doesn't make you bad or good like this is how you experience food and it's it is hard to eat like everyone else and just finding some acceptance peace and grieving that can be huge like that's um a lot of individuals feel like that pressure to like i just want to be able to eat out or be able to eat like everyone else but that's not actually like um accessible for them for different reasons um and how do i find a way to nourish myself in a way that works for me and um, kind of grieve that, like what's no- the norm in our yes. society. Part. Yes, that's, I love that point so much. And, you know, I, I have ADHD and I always, there's some like grief in there too. Like I don't work the same as some other people and I didn't function the same as some other people. And there's so much grief there. Right. And, but also realizing that being different isn't a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just like, how can we work with what we have? How can we make this our new normal? Yeah. How can partners or family members support loved ones with ARFID when, you know, they just don't get it. Like they don't have this relationship with food and it's just so hard for them to understand. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of it's yeah, like education around like what it, what it is and better understanding, like, again, like nothing that like we're not here to fix the individual um again val- the validation parts if they're understanding what they're going 
helping support them by validating them can be again helpful and big thing like how can we improve access to their safe foods that's a big thing that i work on with like parents and just like how do we make eating um more safe and comfortable for the individual like what does that person need to feel calm um in their environment so they can eat and like what what do they need to to accommodate them um and providing those accommodations um i think that's another piece like i don't like people struggle with you like i don't want to need these accommodations like them but like if that's supporting you um and being able to eat right like there's nothing wrong with that um kind of helping you know like loved ones understand that too can be really helpful this idea of like fixing i think is so interesting because some people you know, a lot of folks with ARFID feel like they need, there's something wrong with them. Like they need to be fixed and made into more of like a quote unquote, like neurotypical eater. So how can we help those who are feeling that way, gain some acceptance into like this, there's nothing wrong with the way you're eating. And maybe you're not meant to eat, you know, the quote unquote, like neurotypical way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's one of the (laughs) the hardest parts and like, really the, gaining that like the acceptance and um you know compassion for themselves and like you know you know you know figuring out who they are too um can be helpful like you know be empowering them to like oh this is what i like about food and um it's okay that i don't like this about food and i mean i think in our society there's so so many foods that we forget <laughs> that there there can be like more options out there that fit our like sensory preferences and even like helping them see that can can be really helpful too like i'm not trapped <laughs> like there are like there are ways that i can you know you know find in, ways to expand my foods or just eat in a way that works for me and feeling confident, comfortable with that. And that, that takes time with everything, right? It takes time. <laughs> and what do you usually, like, what does treatment look like? I assume it looks different for everybody, but do you find that there is a lot more of this like acceptance that I'm always going to eat a different way? Or do you find that a lot of people end up finding a lot of peace with the foods that they might have feared in the past? Um, a combination of things. So, um, typically a lot of, like, you know, for some individuals, we're really just working on how do we get in more of our safe food. So helping them with around like exec- executive functioning to support them. Like what did they need to accommodate themselves to like remember to eat? Um, you know, put, reducing shame around some like demonized food. I think that's hard because a lot of individuals with our food, like their safe foods, not everyone, but some of their safe foods can be those demonized foods, those packaged foods, things that are easy, that are consistent, often ends up being something that, again, processed, but it's food, it's nourishment. So really helping them, um, like understand like those foods are still going to nourish them and can kind of open more doors around, okay, like I can eat these things and, um, I don't feel like, again, that shame around it. Um, and then, you know, some, some people really do want to expand their food. So a lot of the work is like helping them like discover like what they prefer around food. So is it, you know, what textures are like doing? I don't really like smell. So how can I accommodate by maybe, you know, eating th- things that are colder and like ha- opening doors around that or really like consistent texture. So we're, you know, going through different foods that kind of meet that sensory need. So that can be helpful for them. And I feel like a lot of it, the work is like helping them 
build that like intrinsic motivation to um, try stuff. So they're kind of doing it on their own. It's not, we're not, I'm not sitting and doing food exposures with them because that can kind of feel pressury and like sometimes they're just like not in the mood, there's space to do it, but how can we um, like how, figure out what is safe? Like what makes us feel safe? Like what helps us like try new foods or just to eat in our environment? What do we need to support us? So a lot of it's um, just kind of talking through that and figuring out what works. Um, and they're trying stuff when they're home and like coming back and, um, telling me, Oh, I did this and it really worked and empowering them to kind of do it in the, in their real world. (laughs) Yes. Can you also just explain to our listeners, like when you're, when you say safe foods, like, what do you mean by safe foods? You may not know. Yeah. Yeah. So these foods might be foods that they feel comfortable eating for whatever reason doesn't, um, doesn't bring up any fear they might like physically you know be able to chew small with better um yeah does it cause like maybe some negative health um uh, stuff like they prefer the texture of it it tastes good to them so it could be definitely what is safe for someone um definitely different person to person but could like be kind of different in their mind like what about this thing feels safe um, and there may be different things around the food. Um, some individuals need to drink with food that makes it feel safer. Um, and so, yeah, so everyone's a little bit different, just like guess foods that are just easier for the individual to, to eat. Um, and that, and I think that's, you know, kind of nuanced too, because it could be day to day, like what feels safe today may not feel safe tomorrow. Um, yeah, that's common too. And is there any diff, like, so for example, I'm thinking of somebody who might be struggling with orthorexia, like their safe foods are typically, you know, something that's more low calorie or something like that with ARFID. Do you ever see a correlation with that? Or is it pretty much always based on sensory, I guess, also depending on the subtype as well? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I don't, it's not common um, that they, but they're, you know, again, with anything like our culture can kind of come in and demonize the safe food. So now they're off the, you know, off the list and then they feel like I've got nothing. Um, so even with those, you know, who have orthorexia and even ARFID, like the education around like why all foods are, um, can be nur- nourish our bodies can be, be helpful, but it may not be like the underlying reason um why they're choosing something yeah and is there ever two diagnoses of anorexia or bulimia and arfid what does that look like yeah yeah so definitely um i have worked with individuals who like had anorexia and now have arfid or Mm. have both together um so it's definitely something that's out there and like even like binge eating there's some like again right eating can be for some individuals like their safe food can be sti- like a stim- way to stim um and so they and if they're not eating well during the day like they're really hungry at night there might be some binging um happening so um it's, yeah um it can all like, kind of co-occur in some cases for sure yes and you know, also I, I, I've seen a lot of, and I think we touched upon this earlier, but a lot of guilt around safe foods being like higher in carbs, as you mentioned, being processed. And there is so much diet culture that we come across day in and day out. And it's so hard when the foods that you feel safe around are the foods that are often the most demonized by society and may even be demonized by your very own family members or partners. So how do you help clients 
remove some of that stigma from some of those like demonized quote unquote bad foods that society, you know, tells us we shouldn't be eating as much. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot like the education piece around like, you know, you know, what is this food actually providing you? Um, and kind of showing them that, you know, it is providing you nourishment and really show like, again, what we know is like need, eating enough is way more important than like the very minute nutrients in foods. Um, and our body doesn't like discriminate if it's like a protein coming from a chicken nugget or a protein coming from a steak, you know, like it's going to take that and use it. Um, and really helping them better understand like, you know, like whatever you're, you're enjoying, like in whatever you're able to eat, um, is, is the most important thing. Like all those like little itty bitty details, <laughs> um, are very like lower. <laughs> what would you say, you know, if someone comes to you and they're concerned that they're not getting proper nutrition, they're like, you know what, all of my safe foods are chicken nuggets, bagels, pizza, and I cannot have salads. I don't want to have vegetables. I don't like fruit, but I'm worried that I'm not giving myself adequate nutrition or, you know, they bring up this idea of like gentle nutrition. What would you suggest to them? Yeah. I mean, sometimes even like thinking like, are, are there nutrient deficiencies like actually happening? I think there is this like belief that like, if I'm not eating fruits and I'm not eating vegetables, like that equals unhealthy, but it's not always the case. Um, and even helping them, like a lot of these, you know, bread products are fortified with vitamins and minerals and, you know, helping them see like, you know, maybe they're getting it in, in different ways that aren't from fruits and vegetables. And, um, even like things like, I think even like juice, right. It's a fruit <laughs> it's demonized and like, even showing like, you know, if that's easier for you and that's a great way to get in your like vitamin C that you're not getting because you're not having fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, like that might be easier for me. And that's something that like, you know, a lot of times it might be, um, something that's actually an accessible option. So kind of seeing like, you know, like fruit gummies, like there's fruit comes in so many different forms. And like, if you like that texture things, like even helping them like buying foods that they didn't even know existed um, but might meet their sensory needs too um can can kind of be helpful so kind of again some of the thinking outside of the box and um really removing that like felt need like think especially like fresh fruit that's like the only that the best way is to eat fruit, fruit fresh but that's you know that's not always the case um and you know helping them see that there are other forms of fruits and even vegetables out there that they could that might be easier for them to try. Is there ever like a supplement regimen involved depending on like the severity or, I mean, obviously you want to get them to be eating more food, mm -hmm. but is that ever a treatment modality? Yes. I mean, definitely like with um, like, and like ensures and boost a lot of like those yeah. kind of supplement drinks. Um, a lot of people will find it easier and actually especially find that whatever morning time is harder and that can even like those drinks can help break it in the vitamins, minerals and other nutrients um and can help actually make eating solids a little bit easier it's so, like i can't quite eat something at the beginning of the day or even insert meal <laughs> snack but a drink is easier and so sometimes those supplements will actually be help helpful and yeah some individuals are on vitamins um sometimes medication is hard to take so you're finding different ways to do it whether it's a liquid vitamin like a chewy or a chewy gummy one um so sometimes that that a lot of individuals will, will take those too just to help replace stuff 
switching gears a little bit. So kind of going back to this idea of shame for, you know, a lot of people that I've spoken to, there's been fear around going to social gatherings and they kind of feel like their life is being put on hold because they don't feel like they have the same kind of freedom around food without having to really make sure that there are safe foods around. Are there you know, tips or, or things that people can do to help create some safety when they are in these social gatherings? Maybe the people that they're with don't know about you know, their ARFID and their yeah. sphere of judgment and, and so forth. Yeah. So, I mean, some, some things that we talk about are, you know, can we eat before we go? Or after we go, can we bring a safe food, depending on the environment, um, which can kind of be helpful. Like I know I, sh- I ate, like I ate before, I'm not going to go to this event hungry. Mm-hmm. If there's something there that I like, great. If not, like I've had something and then right, bringing something can make that an environment a little bit safer so they can, you know, that's just, if they like that social aspect of it, but not the food, <laughs> um, you know, they're still able to engage in that social part of it. Um, but that's, you know, it's the common one. It's like those beliefs that I'm able to, to be able to go to these events. Like, I just want to be able to go to the, the events. And we talk a lot about like the, the ableist, like, you know, being able to do all these things that um, maybe not be accessible just because of, you know, my, you know, disorder, or I don't even like that word, but like disability around, right? Food right. and eating, that's difficult. Um and even seeing like, are there other ways that we can connect socially with people that aren't around food <laughs> um, too? Can you like go for a walk or do something else too that maybe, you know, I like enjoy better. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's also interesting because sometimes I, when I've spoken to clients, like thinking about their ARFID, like just like someone would think about a food allergy. Like if someone had a peanut allergy or they were making, you know, certain accommodations at a restaurant, but again, it goes back to this like shame, almost like this is my fault. Like this is something that I did to myself and it's different than somebody who's born with an allergy. So what would you say to that person who is putting a lot of blame on themselves for, you know, having this, um, you know, having our kid? Yeah. I mean, I guess, it's, yeah. Reminding them it's like, it's not their fault. Like, um, just like we, like, you know, there's differences in the way that we look physically or right like our like our brain how we interact with food can also be different and you know you know again that's like helping people other people understand that too because you know as a society we you know may not really be accepting of people with eating differences but can we get to that place where people are accepting of people with eating differences as well as all these other um things that just make us diverse (laughs) as a as a um as a whole um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a common, common thing that I hear and helping individuals just again with that acceptance piece and understanding, like, it's not your fault. It's okay to be different, like, and really embracing that difference and, um, and finding a way that works for them can be really helpful. Yeah. I imagine there might be some listeners that are thinking, you know, can I, quote unquote, cure my orphan. And if this is something that needs to be again, like quote unquote cured, and what would you say to them who are listening? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know, like, I guess for every individual, I would say recovery is different and really what is the end goal? My end goal for you is like, what's your quality of life? And if you like, what is that for you? And if you're able to get there in whatever form fashion that looks like, it may not look like 
hating like your your family or your best friend, but you're like living your life to the fullest and this works for you, then that in my mind is like recovery and or just like a good place, <laughs> a good place for you to be. Um, so is it cured? You know, probably not. But again, is this something that needs to be cured? Is that, you know, again, right? Even if we're going with the notion that like there's nothing wrong, right? That need to be fixed. Um, you know, can you live your life to the fullest in a way that works for you? <laughs> there's lots of elements that go around that. Um, and again, right, accepting that and um, the difference. So yeah, I always say recovery looks different for everyone, but what's the quality of life that you want to live is like a big question that I ask my clients, help them get there. I think that's really great. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on? Obviously, we're not going to cover every single thing about ARFID in the 30 plus minute podcast, but is there anything else that you think is important for our listeners to know about ARFID? So I think we covered a lot of the stuff. I I mean, we did talk a little bit like food exposure stuff. And I think, um, like, that's like a little part of the therapy that I think is important if the client wants it. So, you know, if that's something that they're motivated and want to do, um, that's fine, but it, it absolutely doesn't need to be part of therapy to reach recovery. Um, and exposure therapy can look very different, um, from individual to individual might be just looking at food. Um, it doesn't always have to be eating a new food. (laughs) Um, so I think there's like, yeah, like I see a lot of clients who are like, it's either, I'm all in or I'm not. And so how can we like do the little itty bitty stuff in the middle and seeing that as progress. Um, and I'm sure we see this a lot of clients like zero to 100 versus can we go zero to one to two? (laughs) Take the little steps in between. So I actually, um, another question that just popped up in my head, because this also has come up before for folks with ARFID who would like to be a parent one day, there is so much concern that they like physically cannot be around certain foods. It makes them nauseous, it makes them queasy. And they mm-hmm. fear that they won't be able to give their child a normal life around food. Mm-hmm. How do you address that? Yeah. So I do. I thought I have had a few clients who are parents and they, you know, there it's something about like their, their kids are very motivating for them and they're like able to accommodate. So like, maybe they can't touch certain foods. Um, so maybe they're using gloves or utensils. Um, I've even had that client who's like, I won't eat a banana, but like I can feed it to my kid now. Like the, the smell was too much for me, but I'm like, no, it's, I can handle that now. So there, you know, there's that, there is the potential that like maybe a part of the beginning, but with time, like, you know, there's like that, de- I don't know, desensitization is like a real thing, but you might be more comfortable with the food over time. Um, so it, and absolutely like, you know, you can, your kids will, you know, eat, eat, potentially eat the foods that you don't eat. If you're exposing them to them, you don't, they don't have to see you eating it. Um, but know that you can find ways to kind of accommodate. So you're able to, you know, provide, um, that, that food and maybe you're, you're not eating it. That's okay. But they're eating it. And do you see a lot of ARFID like passed down? Like, is it genetic or is it more of a nurture thing? That's a good question. I, I, I don't have like a specific client or experience with that, but I'd say like it's possible. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, even the individuals who have ARFID and are feeding their kids, I think they like know what didn't work for them as kids. Um, so they may have some eating differences, but they're able to support them in a way that like, 
um, they're growing, developing normally, and you know they're not they're not shaming them. So that, that that's that's actually a positive thing. They've had that experience, and now are knowing how to kind of support their kids in a in a positive positive way. A client actually sent me an article yesterday, like per- perfect in time for this, and it was saying that. Um, it's, there was like a new twin study that shows that RFID c- could be highly heard, um, heritable. Is that the word? Yeah. Her- uh, yeah. Heritable? <laughs> Do you know when you like say <laughs> yeah. words out strange? Hereditary? Hereditary? Hereditary. I imagine, and I'm sure you would probably agree with this too, there probably isn't that much research on RFID yet. It is oh, a yeah. very new diagnosis. We don't even have that much research on eating disorders that have been around for a much longer time. So I hope... Yeah. You know, in doing podcasts like this, we can continue to raise awareness around RFID um, and we can learn more about it and, and get more research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm working with um, a few other dietitians and therapists um, and other practitioners and we're creating some more like a resource website um, to kind of have more of this more easily accessible for individuals, um, and hoping, you know, like we can do some, some more research. Um, I think the big thing, especially with this is like learning from people with ARFID. Um, and they're actually putting together something that's gonna, they're gonna work on like getting lived experience information. Um, because I feel like even in my experience, that's where I learned the most. Um, and how to support, you know, what works, what, what, you know, what support they need. They're sharing this information with me and I'm learning. And that's been like the biggest, um, biggest help around this is just learning from those with perfect. Yeah. Well, Lauren, you're such a wealth of knowledge and we are so happy to have you on. Where can our listeners find you, work with you? Um, yeah, sure. So you can find me on Instagram at the uh, at arfid.dietitian. And then my website is my name. So it's laurenshirisi.com. Um, so you can find um, articles there and then how to connect with me um, if you are looking for someone to work with. Yeah. And we will have all of those links in the show notes. So it's easy for listeners to connect. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review, let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at foodtherapypod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.